And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, James Shubsky with us. James, by the way, thank you for serving in the Army. I wanted you to know that. Absolutely. I did nine years Navy myself. Oh, no kidding. Had a great time. Great people there. Great people. Have the, the, the store, Margie's Outdoor Store, which is this, the focal point of these strange reports that come in, why did people start calling you folks? with these reports? Well, you know, we've, uh, from the beginning, we expressed an openness to it. And, you know, I think it's just kind of the nature. This, it's so common out here for people to have unusual experiences. And, you know, we're a small town, and so it's not uncommon for the conversation to turn that way. And uh, so, you know, we kind of decided uh, to make, it a, make ourselves a safe place where people who had unusual experiences uh, could come and report. And so, most of the reports are verbal reports. Uh, a few folks have come in and filled out forms that we have. Even on Margie'sOutdoorStore.com, uh, we have a paranormal report form there. Uh, we just brought that online. And, you know, we take these things in and we look for patterns. We try to make some sense of what's going on out here. Um, recently, I've begun producing maps um, that give people basically self-guided tours to some of the supernatural hotspots. That's that Arcane Adventure Maps book, right? Yeah, exactly. And so these are uh, actually the small uh, full-color pamphlets uh, with hand-drawn you know, maps and illustrations and uh, some of the paranormal reports, excerpts from those, and local lore and legends um, about uh, what's going on and how people can engage with it. You know, for me, um, it's great to read and listen to stories and you know, listen to podcasts and radio about these things, but there's nothing compared to getting out there and actually walk in the land and seeing for yourself what it's like. When you get to the gorge um, next week, you'll see what a stunning and apocalyptic landscape it is. And, um, you know, my greatest joy is sharing this with folks. You know, we're having such an incredibly interesting time. Um, Yeah. Tell me about these little people you were talking about before the break. Yeah. So, um, but that one that had the praying mantis head, uh, the driver said that just after he passed it, the lights in the center console of his car went dead. His phone started acting strange. Oh, geez. Alarms going off on it and things like that. He got about 300 yards down the road and started feeling sick. So, you know, that was just this March. Like uh, nauseous? Yeah. Uh, dizzy is the way he described it. And um, so, you know, that's just – and then he just uh, – it was about – one or two o'clock in the morning uh, when he had this encounter out there in the desert. Uh, but we've had folks who tell us that they've seen creatures that are as small as 18 inches tall, and they've drawn us pictures, and they've got sort of large ears. And, you know, I, you know, we take this information, in and I'm trying to, you know, adjust my world model to this information that's coming to us. All the folks seem genuine. Of course, there are some people who are just having a good time. They're pretty easy to spot. Sure. Um, you know, and no harm, no foul. I mean, it's an interesting thing, and if you want to, you know, have a little drama in your life, no skin off our back if you come in and uh, tell us a fun story that may not be true. But like I said, it's surprisingly uncommon for that to be the case. And a lot of the stories um, are pretty, they're non-sensational. You know, they're, I was, you know. They're cut and dry, aren't they? Yeah, and, and there's, you know, it's a couple sentences. And, you know, we I was driving home one night, and this big black cat jumped across the road, and its body was the length of both of the lanes of the road. And um, 
it's stuff like that that it's sort of the everyday matter of factness, you know, not um, having grown up here, and how common it is. You know, it's like oh, telling someone you saw a deer. Yeah, I saw some lights in the sky this morning. It's really amazing to me, just from a you know anthropological study of the people who live here, that this is sort of the environment that they they grow they've grown up in, and they're used to having these unusual experiences. Let's take some calls with you, Jim. Let's sure. start with Mark in Baltimore. Welcome to the program, Mark. Go ahead. Thank you, George, for taking my call. Thank you, Mark. I'm a veteran also. I was in the Navy for nine years, just just like you, Mr. Norrie. Thank you. Uh, my, my, and thank you also for your service to the, to the guests. My question was going to be, when you were talking about the door that opens up in the mountains, so I was just wondering, because I've heard stories about cities built in mount, mountains or, or maybe secret UFO bases in there. Do you think maybe there's something in those mountains for people to go into in any kind of a certain scenario that might take place? You know, um, so I've climbed that mountain myself. And the area where the hangar is, is it not near any of the standard routes to the summit. And when most people climb Mount Adams, they're headed for the summit. And so this area is one that's very difficult to get to, and there is, um, and it's it's an enormous mountain. It's over twelve twelve hundred feet tall, and excuse me, twelve thousand feet tall. Um, and in terms of like the pictures that I've seen, you know, and you can go online and look up Mount Adams hangar door, and uh, you'll see some yourself. It, it does appear that there's an opening, and people claim to have seen things flying in and out of there. So there's a physical thing that's going on there. Um, this whole area is riddled with caves and caverns, and uh, some that are literally go miles and miles long. And so there's definitely a, a subterranean component to the landscape around here. Now, we haven't had anyone uh, yet come into the store and tell us that they have explored these uh, underground areas. Um, but again, we have had people tell us that they have, um, they've, they've seen this. We also have many reports of, first of all, uh, the orbs, then things that look like flying saucers, and then many, many reports of uh, clearly uh, human-built aircraft, but things like black choppers that can fly up the canyons and make no sound. Uh, and so there's this strange combination of, it seems like three different phenomena, and it's unclear to me, um, you know, what's going on with these uh with the hangar door and underground bases. Absolutely. Mark, thank you. Brendan's with us, Austin, Texas. Go ahead, Brendan. Thank you, George and James. I also was going to ask if there's any people, uh, any stories of people accidentally stumbling into caves or bases. So that's awesome that he asked that. I was going to say, though, that uh, there, there's a super fun site, Bradford Island, from 1942. The Army Corps of Engineers were polluting there with dozens of highly concentrated mutagenic toxins that don't break down. I thought it was really strange that you were talking about strange mutated, possibly mutated creatures in that area, as well as the nuclear stuff. Thanks, James. Mm -hmm. And George. Well, you know, Hanford is considered uh, the North America's worst cleanup site. So not only were they creating an element that had never existed before, they were converting uranium into plutonium, uh, they also it was an industrial-scale operation, and they had many, many chemicals there. Some of them were used to clean out the cores, and uh, and with all of the things that they were doing, 
Um, there is a high level of toxins going on um, all around from a radiological perspective, but there's also profoundly um, ugly chemicals going on out there. You know, I remember as I was researching about the animal lab, today there are people on Hanford uh, who are testing the animal populations, and it turns out that there's a guy whose job it is to track radioactive bunny poop. Uh, the bunnies will hang out by the barrels of nuclear waste because they're warm. They'll get irradiated, and then they'll hop all over um, this Hanford. And Hanford is a site that's enormous. It's uh, 600 square miles. And so they will track this radioactive waste from the animals. Well, the thing that I find uh, concerning is that rabbits are a, a core prey species, and so our coyotes, our wolves, our cougars, all these creatures are eating the animals uh, that are from Hanford. And um, we don't know exactly what they're doing in terms of how that's changing them biologically. Have you ever been scared in that region, James? Uh, you know, um, with all of my experience in the wilderness, I have, um, I'm pretty confident outdoors. And I have a lot of friends who refuse to go into many of the caves around here, which to me is, uh, you know, just a joy to go spelunking. And so um, there are times when you have a definite sense that you're in the presence of something unusual. Um, there have been some of the high desert plateaus that I've been on where there's a, I've had a distinct sensation that, um, uh, I guess you might say the veil between the worlds is extremely thin there. I think that there is, because of all of this apocalyptic action that happened in the physical realm here in the Columbia River Gorge, you know, and you, you hear things like the uh, ancient wisdom that as above, so below. So things that are happening in the uh, physical realm are also mirrored in the etheric and astral and mental and spiritual realms. Next up, let's go to Joe, yeah. Long Island, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Yeah, hi, James. I have a couple of questions. Uh, first, that road to uh, Mount St. Helens, as I recall, was about 40 miles, and it didn't seem like there were uh, any other major roads and that whole, you know, 40-mile stretch off that road. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, when the road was constructed or maintained, had the workers seen anything or if people even hiked off that road as it seemed to be heavy foliage on either side. Uh, my second question would be, uh, you had about time slips and, and the time tunnel type stuff. And this could be even the past or the future. Uh, now, I know in Idaho you had miners. Maybe there's mining people from that era still showing up. All these small creatures could be from the future. And I think some movies have been shot in that area, right? I think maybe uh, one of the recent Planet of the Apes uh, movies was shot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your question started with, uh, what are the roads like out in these wilderness areas? There's and, like a couple uh, of them, Arthur. Yeah, well, we have a number of roads, and, you know, I have a special uh, FJ Cruiser 4x4. We've rigged up with cameras, and I will go out and investigate um, reports that are fairly recent. So if something's happened in the last week or so, I'll go out to the site and check it out in my 4x4. And, you know, there are... Um, it is incredibly vast, and he's right to say that you get off of those roads and you are in the thickest, most rugged terrain you can imagine. And um, and so 
there are main roads, and then there are a number of dirt forest service roads that that, that wind through there. But it is still uh, incredibly vast and incredibly dense, easy to get turned around, and especially in some of these areas where uh, compasses don't work properly. Um, in terms of that idea of things coming from the past and from the future, you know, um, so Hanford was doing some very high-end nuclear research. In fact, right now there is a special thing there called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. It's located on the Hanford site. It's run by Caltech and MIT. Basically, they have uh, these two long, um, they're 2.5-mile-long vacuum tubes, and they're shooting lasers uh, down these tubes, and they're looking for anomalies in space-time. And apparently, according to the website, uh, if you look up LIGO Hanford, L-I-G-O Hanford, um, you'll see that they have actually made some discoveries about space-time anomalies. And so the things that are going on here are, are very strange. You know, whether it's some Hanford programs, we know from Freedom of Information Act requests that they confirm that they are doing and funding research into parallel universes and pocket dimensions and hidden spaces. And whether those are other dimensions or things that can dip back or forward in time, um, I really wouldn't put anything past them. I mean, we are talking about a facility, like I said earlier, that's tinkering with the fabric of reality. And so it's very possible that this big black panther creature is a, some type of extinct Ice Age creature, either brought forward or resurrected or who knows what. Has anybody been eaten by the creature? You know, one of the things that... Uh, it's a great relief to me, is that in 30 years of reports, we have had no hostile encounters. And in fact, you know, any of the hostile encounters with Sasquatches in the area, they seem to be related to someone coming, uh, you know, with firearms and, and spoiling for a fight to begin with. Um, but uh, very, very, very few um, hostile encounters. And what's interesting, when you look around the world, there are many legends of Black Panther protector creatures in uh, ancient Egypt, uh, Babylonia, Asia, India, subcontinent, uh, South America. Every one of these cultures describes Black Panthers as protectors. Hmm. And, and so I find that interesting. Interesting that if the theory about Hanford is correct, they were trying to get these creatures to protect the site itself. I don't know what it all means, but to me it's a um, fascinating connection. West of the Rockies, Jeff's with us in Oregon. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff, go ahead. Hi, how are you? Okay. Hey, hey uh, George, I just want to say that love what you all do and your staff. And Thank you. Thanks for your service. Well, thank you for everything. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. So uh, this is 1975 and summer 75, so we, you know, it's young, young, young guys, you know, partying around. And uh, well, now we look up and we see these lights, like red, green, white, and blue. And they go up and down, left to right, up and down. This went on through the summer, and then they take off and come back. Way back, we went and see them for like a week or so. And we look up, there they are again. So we had my little brothers and sisters one night. They seen them too. So when our parents came home, we go, hey, we, we told them a story, and, little, and our little brother and sister, yeah, we seen the lights too. And I, then at one point, just kind of quit, quit showing up there above the mountain. Where were you located when you saw these? It was in Southern Oregon here. Oh, it's yeah. It's a little mountain, it's a little mountain called, we uh, used to call it Mount Griffin. Then there's uh, another mountain called Anderson Butte. It's a, another mountain behind it. 
People yeah. must have a field day with uh, sightings out that way, James. You know, the Cascades seem to be a hot spot for it. And, you know, the one thing that I, I hope people are understanding from some of these this context that I'm giving is that it is a vast, vast wilderness. Um, and outside of these tiny ribbons of humanity um, on the small roads and even the Forest Service roads, like it is truly dense and rugged. The opportunity for things to hide out there is like if you don't get out into it, it's impossible to really imagine the vastness of these spaces and just how articulated and hidden much of the landscape is. Um, and, and so the Cascades, uh, like this viewer who's uh, south of us a bit, uh, um, not surprised that we're hearing about lights because the Cascade Mountains um, are seem to be a, a hotspot of that kind of activity. How do people find Margie's Outdoor Store when they're in that area? Well, very simple. Um, so you come down uh, to the middle of the gorge. Um, Hood River is the largest town nearby. That's on the Oregon side. And there's a Hood River Bridge. You come over to the Washington side of the river. And we're in the town of Bingen. And so, again, we're about uh, 60 miles east of Portland uh, on the north shore of the Columbia River Gorge. Margie's Outdoor Store, margiesoutdoorstore.com. Great place to look us up. And we've got. And your map book is available at the store, right? Yeah. And, you know, we're getting more and more requests. I'm considering putting that up online. I thought it was the kind of thing that only people in the gorge would be interested in who are actually here. But it sounds like, uh, from the feedback we're getting, uh, that people. I would like us to make it available more widely. So keep up with our social media, Margie's Outdoor Store on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and also keep an eye on our website, and um, uh, we'll keep people posted. And mention your website uh, name, please. Sure, margiesoutdoorstore.com. And we've got it linked up for you at coasttocoastam.com. We're going to come back in a moment with James and take final questions. From you right here on Coast to Coast AM, he's also got a presence on Facebook and Instagram as well. We've got those links for you as well. But we're talking about paranormal activity in the Pacific Northwest, and there seems to be a lot of it, including these black panthers that are huge. Are they real or not? And welcome back. George Norrie, James Shubsky with us. We're back with final calls. Let's go to Chris in Milwaukee to get us going here. Christopher, go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, so I want to call. I'm just wondering. So I know that uh, Mount Adams is an active volcano. And I'm wondering if anybody's done any sort of comprehensive, like, air quality tests in the area. And the reason I ask is that it historically, like, you think about like Parnassus and the Oracle of Delphi. I know they've done air quality studies in that area and have found like high volumes of like methane and ethylene gases um, that have produced hallucinatory visions. Okay, that's interesting. I think they've done some extensive testing with the air quality in those regions, James, haven't they? Yeah, they have. <clears throat> and But I think uh, the caller's point is really interesting. One of the theories that I've been considering is that because we have all of these um, – geomagnetic anomalies in the area that may also be uh, impacting uh, something about people's brain chemistry. And and I'm not necessarily saying that they're having hallucinations, but it may be that um, you know, some people believe that consciousness can be changed like a channel. And of course, we spend most of our time in the everyday physical world, normal problem-solving channel. But as you start to look at um, some of these other experiences, um, you are sort of shifting your perception or your ability to perceive into other uh, dimensions or other uh, 
modes of consciousness. And, you know, the energy of the geology around here is so incredibly uh, articulated and unusual that that may be uh, part of why so many people are having unusual encounters out here. It just has something to do with the way the actual electromagnetic energy is impacting our biology. Well, that's a good point. James, uh, keep in touch with us and stay safe out that way, all right? Thank you very much for having me. James Skubsky, and his website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. He's got a book called Arcane Adventure Maps that you can get at the Margie's Outdoor Store in Bidgen, Washington, when you get out that way and pick it up and uh, have some fun. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been in M. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad? Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ah, oh, would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, 
I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew this sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it was welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them, causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with all these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel. Although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room, when I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with a perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. 
Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eve would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity. As officers of the police, a shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself... In the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? 
It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such as a sound a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony, anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Louder! Villains, I shriek, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. What a classic. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean Ladasor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Boros, Tim Benal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then. Be safe, everyone.